and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we will cover one of the many cases of reported reincarnation experiences so that we can explore the concept of reincarnation and bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go any further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crox for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. Our story today takes us to California in 1933. 1933 was a rough year for California. In March, Southern California was struck by its deadliest earthquake ever recorded in Californian history, killing approximately 120 people and causing millions of dollars of damage. After that, a fire that started on the 3rd of October in Griffith Park, Los Angeles, swept out of control, killing at least 29 civilians who were fighting the fire. But tragedy wasn't finished with California yet. There was one more adversity to come on New Year's Eve. The lead-up to the events of December 31, 1933, had a deceptively innocent beginning. In November of 1933, there was a fire in the San Gabriel mountain range that burned through the forest, covering the mountain, leaving it bare and devastated. The fire removed the supporting structure of the trees and foliage, and a heavy rainstorm fell on the 14th and 15th of December, dropping four millimetres of water over the mountain and loosening and destabilising the topsoil further. When the rain started falling on New Year's Eve afternoon, I'm sure most people were more concerned about the potential of the rain to ruin the town's New Year's celebrations, and those festivities looked to be even more in doubt as the rainfall increased and turned into a downpour, soaking the mountains and the towns in the valley below. The rain began to fall more heavily and started washing approximately 600,000 cubic yards of dirt, rocks and debris down the mountain. While geology teams had created drains and check dams in the floodpath areas in an attempt to control flooding in the area, nobody could be prepared for the devastation that was moving towards the towns in a 20-foot high wall of mud, water, rock and debris. At a few minutes past midnight on the 1st of January 1934, the water hit the towns, flooding them and leaving them half buried under the tons of mud that had been carried down the mountain, along with cars, animals, trees, rocks and people that had scooped up in its murderous wave. According to a study performed by the Department of Interior, citrus groves, villages, vineyards and highways were destroyed, causing over $5 million damage and more than 40 people were lost. California had ended a year of disaster with a final devastating tragedy that would echo through the history of the townships and never really be forgotten. Which brings me to today's guest. Scott Perry doesn't live anywhere near La Crescenta. In fact, he lives almost right across the country in Illinois. But his dreams of a little girl lying on a sofa are very much connected to the events of the tragic night that occurred in the opening minutes of 1934. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Marilyn. I appreciate it. You're most welcome. It's a very interesting story. So your story starts off with you having a very vivid dream about a little girl sitting on a sofa. How old were you when you first started having your nightmares? I was about, my earliest memories are just under the two years old. I'm going to say 20, 22 months old, 23 months old. Those are my earliest memories, which freaks my parents out the most. I remember every dream, actually. For me, it's like we live in it uh, over so much. It's ingrained in part of me. I, I, I couldn't forget it if I wanted to. I mean, and the thing about it is I remember every little detail. But for me, I started having them when I was just about two years old. And 
I can remember having a dream. It always started out the same. Uh, you asked me previously in a conversation that if I had any other memory of it, I, the only other ones I didn't think about until later, but the only other ones I had bits and pieces, I would be sitting on the steps and watching my mother hang up clothes on a uh, clothesline. I can remember the dress she was wearing and I can remember the, the dry summer breeze coming through and blowing uh, through and watching the, the sheets uh, of uh, the linen moving in the wind and my mother uh, having her hair up and like a uh, tied up in a braid in the back. I remember that and the, the, seeing uh, her hair blowing in the wind a little bit while sitting on the, I'm sitting on the steps of this little wooden porch holding like a little doll. But that was, that's about the only other memory, but it, it was very seldom I had that happen to me. It was always, uh, it always starts out the same where it always starts with my mother coming in and waking me up. Uh, and I, I always had a feeling that when it happened, I wasn't at home. And, but I was always uncertain about that. But I always got the feeling, because I, I, I wasn't sleeping on a bed or anything like that. I was sleeping on a uh, little sofa. And I remember uh, being really groggy and my mom picking me up and putting me and I remember putting my, draping my arms over her shoulder, and I can remember feeling the the warmth of her neck as my head slumped against her shoulder, and uh, she was telling me to get up. We had to go now, and she was so urgent in her voice. It didn't scare me, but it startled me, and uh, that's one of the one thing I, I can say is uh, throughout the entire experience, I never had the fear. I mean, it was um, my mother was uh, more than a source of comfort. As, uh, but any child that probably close to her parents is probably the way that feels. But anyway, uh, she grabs me and starts running out the the door. And I can remember her pushing on the screen doors, it flying open, we, uh, coming down the steps. And I can remember uh, the jolt and sound of the screen door slamming shut. As I turned around my head, I could see my father on the passenger side of the car getting the door open and then him running around the other side of the car to get into the driver's side and uh he's yelling that we have to go and we have to go now and before my mom made it to the car i saw a, a, a an older i'm not gonna say i thought they were like teenagers but when you're little everything looks big uh a boy and a girl uh i didn't think they were young or nothing like that but i must say teenagers more than anything, uh, but at that age, I really didn't know. But the thing is, when I looked at them, it's like I knew them, but I didn't know who they really were. Uh, it's like I, I was familiar with them, but I just, I wasn't related to them. I, I knew I wasn't related to them. But, and that's one thing that's kind of haunted me because I wasn't sure if they were family members or not, you know. Uh, but they're already in the back seat with the door shut. And it's a, uh, four-door sedan, uh, black, color black, and uh, my mom, she gets to the passenger side door, slides me in the seat and tells me to get over, and I got in the middle of the seat, and my mom gets in the car, and about the time my mom's getting in the car, my dad is shutting his door, and uh, I can remember the details of what they're even wearing, but if the thing is, seeing all this that starts out is, I'm seeing it from person per person viewpoint. Um, it's not like a dream where you see you're looking down or you're controlling it 
or you see it from a, a different perspective. I'm so seeing you mean it. You're like seeing I'm, it through her eyes, kind of thing. Or? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I can only see what's in my viewpoint. Uh, and at the point, at that point, I didn't know if I was a, a, a boy or girl. To be honest with you, the only thing that kind of threw me off was when I started suspecting I was a girl. Is as I got older, my mother picked me up and put me back in her lap as the car started to take off. And as when I looked in over her shoulder, my arms were wrapped around her neck, and I could see like a frilly night nightgown on that goes um, frilliness all the way down to my uh, wrist. And uh, every so often, I would see. I'm thinking it's either sandy blonde or it could be bright blonde uh, curls gets in my eyes and uh, I'd have to, you know, brush it out of the way. I had that happen every time. And uh, that's when I really started suspecting. I, I, that's what threw me off. I was always having trouble with that. It, it kind of confused me more than anything. Uh, and that's when you start feeling like you're two people in one body. I've had that feeling for a long time. Uh, the thing is, it's uh, it's not like you're you're uh, thinking you're you know you're a girl, nothing like that. I was a boy, and I'm I'm all boy. You know what I mean? I just I I just never even thought about that, but it threw me off because yeah, I'm thinking, am I a boy or am I a girl? So for years and years, I had thought that I was a boy, but not until I was probably about sixteen or seventeen, I suspected it was a a little girl. Uh, as we started to go my mother had me over her shoulder and I could see the boy and the girl in the back seat. And I actually remember what they were wearing. The boy had coveralls on with a long stripe type shirt on his sleeves were rolled up a little bit. His pants were uh, rolled up at the bottom and he had these like worn leather shoes on. Uh, the girl was wearing a dress. Uh, I remember her eyes. Uh, I can remember they were trying really hard not to be scared. I think if they showed it, it probably would have scared me more. But I can remember looking into her eyes, and it was like uh, she, they were telling me not to worry, we were going to be okay. At that inkling, I had no idea what was really coming. And as we started to go down the road, I can see out the back window, and it's, of course, it's a dirt road, and I'm seeing uh, the dust coming uh, from when the car's moving down the road. And uh, the boy and girl are really kind of panicking. My mother is telling my father that I need to go faster. It wasn't quite urgent yet. I mean, it was her, you know, it, it wasn't a desperate plea. My father uh, is going pretty fast. And uh, he had on a hat with a, a black band around it, but it had like a white stripe in the middle of it. A, uh, my mother had a, a sundress. They had an apron on, and uh, uh, the apron was more around her waist, not around the top. And uh, that was almost, I'm going to say, plaid color with a little uh, more, you know, kind of like a, uh, I would say, yeah, just, just a plaid, a plaid uh, sundress. Uh, I can remember she had uh, uh, these warm black shoes on. My father was wearing a white shirt short sleeve suspenders on uh tan khaki type color pants uh and he had uh uh i'm gonna say medium brown lace-up shoes 
on, and they were kind of worn, not, 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 not terribly worn, but kind of worn, like they hadn't been shined up in a while. And uh, for years, the way they dressed, I kind of suspected that they were from the southern part of the United States. And, uh, but I, I, I knew right off the bat from, from my earliest memory, this was in the 30s. Uh, I mean, just everything about it was set in the 30s. And the crazy thing is, as a kid, I've always been drawn to movies and TV shows that had that kind of clothing on in that time period. Uh, I was always interested in it. Uh, gangster movies, you name it, you know. And uh, it's amazing because I, I kind of related to it. Like I, I, I always felt like I, was, I was, wasn't in the right time period growing up. And uh, that's one of the biggest things I struggled with. I didn't feel like I was in the right time period the whole time, I, I, all my life, actually. I still struggle with a little bit of that. Um, but as I look out over her shoulder, I can see out the back window and the, the dust forming from the, when the, uh, the car's moving down the road. But then I see something moving in the dark. And uh, it's like a giant tidal wave coming. And... When you're a kid, everything seems big, uh, but at that time, I would have thought it was 12 to 15 feet high. Turns out, from what I've read, it was 20 feet high. And uh, but it was it wasn't just water. And and, and it, this the thing is, it, this did not happen during the daylight. This happened at night. Uh, I didn't know what time or nothing like that. Uh, I did find out later it was, it was around midnight when it happened. Uh, it was a brown, muddy, churning wall of water. And when I saw that, that's when I started to panic. And I, I started tapping my mother on her shoulder, trying to get her attention. And I telling her to look out the back window. And she turns her head and sees the wall of water coming. That's when she screamed at my father to go faster. Go faster now. He sees it in the mirror of the car. And uh, I remember the panic, the look of panic on his face. He burnt the floor of the car and then he, she's yelling at him to go faster again and he says he got it to the floor can't car can't go any faster and uh the water it just it's happened so quick i the thing is from start to finish i'm gonna say it's less than four minutes from the time i wake up to the time i die that's how fast the memory was uh the car the wall water hits the back of the car and uh it shook the car violently and then it comes up over the back of the hood, uh, the trunk, I mean, and it hits the back window, and it blows out the back window. And I remember the boy getting hit hard uh, in the back of the head with the glass. And as the water is pouring in over the back seat, both driver's side and passenger side window are down, and it starts coming in around the sides of the car, too. And uh, that's the most terrifying part right there. The look in the girl's face in the back seat was utter terror. And I can remember her screaming a little bit, but the water came in so quick, it filled up the back seat really quick. Uh, the water came in on the passenger side, and it started to rip me out of my mother's hands. My father is, is he's trying to hold on to the steering wheel, but my mother is trying desperately to hold on. I can still, to, to this day, remember her grip. I mean, it, it, that's the hard, one of the hardest part is her struggling to hold on to me. And then her hand 
and it got to the very tips of our fingertips before I was washed away. And I was sucked out the pasture side window. And uh, I can remember the feeling of the water washing over me as it took me away from the car. And uh, I, I didn't panic. That, that was the one thing. It was like uh, water was comforting to me. Uh, uh, it happened so quick as I started to drown. Now, or maybe my brain is saving me from, uh, you know, the, the terrifying part of dying. But I can remember struggling for breath and then calm, perfectly calm. And uh, I see a light coming through the water and it's sparkling through the water uh, like a big spotlight or sun. But, you know, it's happening at night. And uh, I remember coming out of my body and I... I'm going through the water, going up towards the light, and I came out of the water, and I see devastation everywhere. I see water up to uh, the top of uh, of the uh, underhang of a house, right where the, the roof starts. I see water uh, halfway up trees and things like that, and uh, I see it just devastation everywhere. And that's, and then I start going through the sky like super fast i mean it's like it's like watching a film get sped up uh i'm rushing towards the light and that's it i mean once i hit that it always ends right at the brightest light and that's when i wake up every single time sweating really bad panting really bad and a cold sweat mind you i mean it's always a cold sweat at the age of two i didn't know any better i didn't know what was really going on now, this continued on. I'm going to say about average of three to four times a month, I'd have that dream. And late 1974, we moved. Uh, well, actually, I think it was spring of 74, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, we moved into another house. And uh, I had a bunk bed at my the first house I, I moved to. And uh, the bunk bed was split into twin beds. And uh, my dad... Uh, just started really working at a, a nuclear power plant, building it. And so he'd have to get up about 4.30 to 5 in the morning. And uh, I had the dream. And then and this is at age four, by the way. And then um, I'd had a dream. And uh, I woke up this time around where my mother was trying to hold on to me. And uh, I woke up just crying my eyes out holding on to the foot post of the bed at the foot of the bed, not at the head of the bed. Somehow I had gotten out of bed and had crawled all the way, you know, on the floor, and I was holding on to that bed post for dear life. My parents came in, and I remember my mother waking me up, uh, to, uh, saying I was having a nightmare. And, uh, and I said, no, no, I died, Mom, I died, I died. And my stepdad come in got mad. I remember him being angry. He goes, oh, you're all right. He said, stop your crying. He said, get back in bed. And I remember trying to go back to sleep. And I couldn't go back to sleep. I was so shook up. Uh, she came in there to check on me. And I heard him, him say something. If he's not asleep, let him come up and watch TV. He'll fall, fall back asleep in front of the TV or something, you know. And, uh, so I watched, I got, I got to go sit in the living room on the floor and watch TV and I watched my dad. That's one, probably the first time in my life where I watched my dad get dressed for work that early, where he, uh, 
putting on his uh, leather work boots, getting ready to go to work. And uh, I just, I remember that vividly. And uh, he's saying something like around the, you're okay now, aren't you? He said, so you didn't die. You just had a nightmare. And, and, but I kept trying to tell him that I knew it was real. And I tried to tell him that I died in a flood and, and my parents kind of really laughed it off. You know what I mean? Didn't believe me. My mom does not recall that happening. Uh, that's when I knew at age four, I had died in a past life without a single doubt. When you're four years old and you know that the truth, I mean, I really wasn't exposed to death at, yet at that age. Um, I, at seven years old, we, he, my stepdad had a cousin that died in a car accident. We went to the funeral. That's when I was exposed to death, and it shook me. It haunted me, seeing him in the coffin and everything, the smell of the, the funeral home, uh, you, know, the embal- you know, the embalming smell. Uh, uh, that's haunted me all my life. I would never let any kid I had go to a funeral that age. It was very traumatic, but the thing is, I knew at age four that it was real. And anyway, fast forward a little bit, uh, age seven, I was at church on a Sunday morning and the pastor was talking about how, uh, we only have one life to live. Uh, when we die, we either go to heaven or hell and that's it, you know, or, or you, or you go to purgatory is what he was trying to claim, you know? And, uh, I don't know why, what brought it up. And I'm sitting next to my dad, which is the way it usually was. Uh, and I, kind of elbow him a little bit and I, I i lean over and i tell him i said dad that's not right uh when you die you have the choice to live again you have that choice i mean i was adamant about it uh he got mad told me to shut the hell up or i was gonna you know be in trouble uh that he, i was talking nonsense and he just lost his temper with me and that's the last time i ever talked about it with my parents my mom, she doesn't understand why I'd never talked to her about it. I said, well, when you get shoot out like that, why would any kid want to go through it again? You know, I mean, I had to keep it to myself. I, all those years, I had to keep it to myself. And that's actually why I started the podcast, because I think it's so important for kids to be able to come and say, I'm having these memories, because there's trauma that's actually related to it as well. Uh, I see a therapist for my anxiety and my depression, and I tried talking to her about it, and uh, for the last year that I've been seeing her, she has slowly opened up to the idea of past life because I talked to her so much. And uh, last week I had a visit, and she told me that it's trauma, Scott. You, you had trauma in a past life that was never resolved. Uh, she thought, well, you know, losing your mother's grip like that makes you long for parent to comfort you. I mean, my mom was always there. I mean, uh, I wasn't neglected by any means or nothing like that, but, uh, I never felt that, like neglected. And I wish now I had talked to her about it because I kept this stuff in more than, more than I ever probably should have. The only one that I was really surprised was, uh, 2001, my oldest sister and her two kids lived with me and, uh, I wanted to help her out and I let her stay with me. It ended up being about four years. And uh, one night we were watching the, uh, on Dateline NBC, the James Leniger story. I had a book out called The Reincarnation of a WW2 uh, Fighter Pilot. I never realized 
just how much my older sister knew about this. Uh, she was sitting on a recliner and her little 10 year old son comes up to her and uh, he asked his mom, he said, mama, is reincarnation real or past lives real? And she looks at me and says, well, you need to go over and talk to your uncle Scott. Uh, he has past life memories. And it kind of struck me dumbfounded because we really hadn't talked about it or anything like that. And I really didn't realize, you know, she knew about it. And then she looked at me and she goes, I remember all the screaming at night that you went through. The night terrors waking you up and your bed, would, your sheets would be soaked. And uh, I never really realized she knew more than she let on. And uh, so he came over to me and I he said, I had him on my lap, and I, I told him, I said, yeah, they're, I think past lives are very real. I said, I told him exactly what I went through. I said, uh, I wasn't scared uh, dying, and I used to be so scared of death. Uh, I think now it would be, it's a blessing. Uh, it's not it's not something to be scared of. It's just the next step. Uh, now, whether, you know, I'm right or wrong, we won't find that out until we die again, you know, but... Uh, the thing is, what, what haunts me more than anything is remembering every little vivid detail. Yeah, that's it. what's amazing about your story is the detail you remember. The, the memory of your, your hair brushing across your face. Exactly. Um, such an amazing story. It's so heartbreaking, actually. It's such a, a heartbreaking memory to have to have. It, is, it really is, knowing that this little girl, I mean, she didn't get to live her life and... Uh, and I have to say if, because I can't prove it, you know what I mean? Uh, but if I'm her, I feel like at times I'm wasting this life. I, I'm not I'm not honoring her by living a full life. Uh, I'm not a bad person or nothing like that. It's just I've felt lost all my life. Uh, my mom thinks it's because of my childhood of being bullied and or just feeling like I never be quite belonged, and not just in this time period, but this fam my family that I grew up in. And I mean, I love my family. It's just, I feel like at times I'm letting little June down. And uh, that's what upsets me more. I don't know, though. It seems to me when I look at these cases that it's always more about experiencing emotions and experiencing like what it's like to be human more than going out and making a million dollars and getting a Ferrari, you know what I mean? Because the one thing that comes out with a lot of the kids when they talk about it is they say, I chose this life because it's a life that can teach me the lesson that I want to learn the most. So yeah. I don't think you're necessarily a failure if you haven't gone out and done what everybody else has done. I, I do believe that. Um, I think in this life, what have I learned? Well, there's, I'm going to say it's probably three things. One, I, I'm, I'm extremely loyal to the people that take the time to be my friend and family members. Uh, I value friendship more than probably most people do. I would do anything for them. It's, but it's, it's a point where they become family, you know. The other thing is I learned that money really doesn't mean anything to me. Because I know in the end we can't take it with us. I mean, it means nothing. Uh, so that's, maybe those are the life lessons I was meant to learn. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I could believe that. could believe that. Well, I think, too, the other thing is sometimes we make a difference to the people around us and we don't realize it. Like, uh, you actually seem to be a very kind, compassionate person. 
And I'll bet there's been times in the past where you've been there for people when they really needed it. And to you, you didn't realize, but just being there for them. I, I, I wish I could remember more of, of, of her life. And I didn't until last February. Yeah, it was February 2019. I had tried before to look on the internet to see if I could find out if my past life memories were real, you know. I had always looked on the internet, uh, flood kills family and car, uh, southern United States, you know, I tried to look on things like that. And I could never find any anything at all. And I was watching a YouTube series called Hollywood Cemetery. This guy takes a camera and he walks around the Hollywood cemeteries and talks about actors' lives and things like that. He had a new video, and I watched this video, and it comes up, and he's got these twin boys, and he said, uh, uh, he starts talking how they did, just started getting into acting, and just only had a few bit parts, and they died in a flood in 1934. And uh, then he says, uh, the New Year's Day flood, 1934, of Montrose, California. And the second I heard Montrose, I mean, it was just like, hearing a switch go off my brain it's so familiar i knew that was it right then and there i mean so i i mean i got off my bed watching youtube on my tv and i went into my computer and sat down and and i don't know what really made me type this in but i typed in family uh, five die in car in flash flood montrose california 1934 new year's day and I, i hit enter and the first link that came up showed a little picture of a car upside down and I saw that car and I instantly recognized that that was the car I was in. I mean, I'm not kidding. I blew that picture up and it said family of five die when car goes off bridge. And sadly, almost every article I think has got it wrong. They claim that the family uh, went off a bridge, drove off of it. Uh, but it, I, I know that's not what happened. The water pushed the car off is what happened. I was um, doing a little research, and the only book I found on anything was this book here. Uh, the Great Casenta Valley Flood by Art Cobry. I've actually been reading a little bit about Art Cobry, and you also, through your actually realising, you ended up uh, getting in touch with someone at La Crescenta, didn't you? Was it Mark Lawler? It was Mike Lawler, yes. Yeah. Uh, I didn't really know who he was. I, had not, I did not have the book in my hand at that time. I was on... Um, one of the Facebook groups uh, on reincarnation group there. And a guy named David Fur said that uh, he showed me, he brought up the link on Amazon. And he said, you need to get this book. And I told him, unfortunately I'm broke right now. I can't afford to buy anything. I'll have to wait until I can afford it, you know? And uh, I, he was very kind and he went ahead and ordered it. I've been reading it off and on for the last couple of weeks. And uh it's, I got to give the guy, Mike, Mike wrote a great book. I mean, a lot of historical references. Uh, but I, when I talked to him on the phone, now what happened was uh, before I even got this book, I decided, uh, you know, after about six to eight months of research, I've gone about as far as I can go. I'm wondering if there's anything out there uh, that could help me find more information. So I tried getting hold of the, the Los Angeles Times. No one ever returned my phone calls. Uh, emails either for that matter and uh, I started doing research on art and I couldn't find a mailing address for him but Mike Lawler uh, it come up that he was a uh, reporter a journalist for an online newspaper the 
San Cosita Valley online.com. And, uh, I thought, well, you know what? It can't hurt to, you know, to get a hold of them. So I got, I sent him an email and, uh, I didn't really tell him what I was wanting to do. I just told him, I'm trying to do some research on the Valley flood. And I was wondering if I could talk to you about it. And, uh, so he gave me his phone number and I called him and, uh, I'm a very honest person, so I just come right off the back, and I told him, you know, I'm about to tell you, you're going to think I'm crazy or weird or whatever, but just try to keep an open mind, you know what I mean? And uh, But I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find some information more about this. So I told him I've had past life memory, and I said I believe I died in, in the flood of New Year's Day, 1934, and I gave him my entire story, and I, I sent him some of the links that I found and I asked him, you know, if you could find out any more information, I, you know, great, very grateful. I, I don't know what else to do here. I've gone about as far as I can. And everything I have found so far, the, the newspaper reports back then were horrific. I mean, they just, not because of the, the disaster, but because of the writing, they had so much misinformation. It's like almost every other article I was reading would, had a different story to tell, you know what I mean? Nothing lined up, mashed up with what I my memories or anything, but he had done some he had done some research, and uh, I had forgotten to tell him one little detail uh, about my memories. And I get in a big hurry sometimes when I'm talking to people, and uh, I I didn't never told him that the little girl was washed outside the car was swept outside the car, and I can still remember the the very tips of our fingers trying to hold on to each other and lost grip. And I know for a fact she wasn't found with the car. I just know she wasn't. He said that he immediately wanted to send me an article that he had found. And he goes, you have memories of five people dying in that flood, but you don't have memories of the sixth person being there. And he goes, there's a reason for that. As the car was pulling away, your uncle jumped into what they called the jump seat. And uh, back then those cars, the trunk opened up. And it could be a little seat for one or two people. He sit down in the trunk. You can't see him out the back window. He had one article where it showed that they interviewed the uncle, and he knew the. Uh, he had the same story I to- I said how the water hit the back of the car. When the water hit the back of the car, he jumped in, was kind of pushed, and was able to grab some tree roots or something as the car went over. Uh, but he told the reporters that. The car was pushed over the, uh, a washed-out bridge. They couldn't stop in time because the water was pushing it. So they wow. didn't drive off of it. They were pushed off of it. And he said that's when he knew right then and there I was telling the truth. Wow. And he, he went from being skeptical to believing me. He sent me that, and that article, I read the article, and uh, the uncle uh, actually had to identify the body of the little girl. Her arm was found about two miles downstream. With her from her elbow on up to her hand sticking above the mud, that's how they found her. And when they, they dug up the body, they, her uncle was one of the first ones to find her, and uh, he had to identify her. I have no memories of him whatsoever. No, uh, in the memories. But that would stand to reason because, as you say, you wouldn't have seen him in the jump seat, and then of course you you would have gone to the light by the time the body was found. Yep. Uh, I, but I tell you what, what haunted me, as I came out of the water, I haunted me the most of my life was seeing that devastation and about the closest damn thing I can come to it is, uh, in the early eighties, my parents 
took a trip down to Missouri uh, after his cousin died to see his his uh, my stepdad's uncle and his wife. It was his, uh, his cousin's mom and dad wanted to give him some of uh, his personal effects they still had. And it was a couple of weeks during the summer, and uh, they had a heavy rain. And Missouri floods a lot. Uh, with the, the Mississippi River and everything, and uh, and we drove up on the highway on on the side of the road. You can see a low lying area, and you can see the water about halfway up the side of uh, the houses, you know. And I tell you what, I saw that going, and I kept flashing on every, on that that memory so bad. I mean, it was terrifying me. I mean, I I I never let my parents know about that. Well. There's a video on YouTube I just saw about three weeks ago, and uh, Mike Waller, uh, his book here, did a bunch of editing. He showed a lot more pictures from the flood, and I'd never seen it until now. And it's only about a year old, but somehow it never come up on my YouTube searches. And uh, the one of the last pictures, it shows the water line up to the the overhangs of the house. Which is what you clapboard, said. Clapboard siding house. And it's... It shows the tree out in front of the house, uh, how high that is. You know, there's just barely part of the, the the roof line is showing. And I saw that, and I was like, my God, that's a, I've seen this house before. And that's what I, I dreamt of. And it's always, as I came out of the water, it's like speeding up. But, well, actually, I saw the devastation of the, of the surrounding area first. All I mean, just everywhere you look, you can see the devastation. And uh, then I just sped up and went up straight up towards the light, you know. I mean, it was, and it's like, uh, it's, the only way I can describe it is like uh, a, a film that gets sped up super fast. You ever seen the old six mil, 16 millimeter films they used to show you in school back in the 70s? You could see the film will spin up when they started getting towards the end, you know. It would speed up, and uh, that's what it was like. That's the only way I can describe it as I went towards the light. And as soon as I, Went and that light just took me. That's, that's I woke up every single time. I never went any further than that. I've had it. I can't tell you exactly how many times, but probably over a hundred times. And uh, but I mean, it, it, it left such a mark in my memory. It does scar you? It would. And I think the thing, the good thing with um, you catching up with Mark was there was that he was able to provide you with information about the family because I've got the little bit here where he wrote about. The Moore family, he says, uh, the Moore family, John and Elizabeth and daughter June, celebrated New Year's Eve at the house of a friend, Bertha McCasland. With them were the Moore's cousin, Earl Dennison, and Bertha's grown son and daughter, Sherman and Ethel Hubbard. A group left the McCausland house in the Moore's car, John, Elizabeth and June in the front seat, Ethel and Sherman in the back seat, with cousin Earl apparently in the rumble seat. They were headed to the Moore's house at 3109 San Gabriel, to spend the night with plans to attend the Rose Parade in the morning. As we know, there was a massive downpour in the burned-out mountains at midnight, sending huge floods of mud and debris down all the drainage washes. And either the bridge was already out and they went off the edge or they were on the bridge when the wall of debris hit. The Moors and the Hubbards died and Denison survived. So that actually ties in exactly with everything that you remember, which is amazing. Yeah, it, it's... It- it's like when I saw, you know, the more and more I confirmed about it, it just shook me to that. The first night I saw that online, it shook me to my core. I mean, I I just knew it was right. I mean, this is it. I mean, this is, you know, I'd given up 
trying to find anything really at that point. You know, I just had to accept either it happened or it didn't, you know what I mean? And I didn't think I'd ever be able to prove it. But the, I ain't kidding you. The second I heard him say Montrose, California, I mean, it like hit. It's like I knew I knew that place, you know. Yeah. And uh, Mike Lawler had been so helpful. Uh, he, he has a buddy that is a genealogist out there in California. And he first wanted all my personal information of, in this life, all my family members, you know, mom, dad, me. He wanted to try to prove without a shadow of a doubt that maybe I had heard about it, you know, or we were related to them in some way. And I heard about it from a family member, you know, um, or, you know, or read about it in a journal or something. But the genealogist, after a couple of weeks, sent me an email saying that he could find nothing that we were related. And uh, he said, there's no way I can believe that you being born in Ohio and living, growing up in Illinois, that you would have ever heard anything ab- about a small town in California, you know. It was, it's kind of comforting, too, in a way, knowing now I, I don't have any doubt that that's who it was. And uh, when I found uh, June Moore's headstone on uh, findagrave.com, I was really kind of surprised to even see that there. But I immediately had to write a little note underneath it, you know. And then I did the same for her mother and father, thanking them in a way for what they tried to do, you know, to try to, you know, keep me safe. And uh, about four months ago, I got an email from a lady that claiming to be a relative of the Moors, and she wanted to know more about my story. And I told her my story, and uh, I let her, you know, it's the truth, if you can believe me or not, you know. She came out and told me that she did believe me because she said, you know, things about them that only my family knows. And we didn't know much about them, to be honest with you. We knew that they died in that flood. That entire branch of that family was wiped out, you know, and uh, they knew about that. What she knew, what I was saying actually lines up. Uh, said that she would get back to me. I have not heard back from her since. Uh, and I hope someday that she does, you know, because if she's a member of the Moore family, I don't want to cause them any grief or nothing like that. And and I don't want, you know, I'm not the kind of person to try to make money off of somebody else's misery or nothing like that, you know. I've had several people say I need to write a book, but how do you write a, bu- a book about on about four or five minutes worth of memory? I don't know how 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 to stretch it out for that long, you know what I mean? And nor do I feel comfortable really doing it, but I think I would like to write a book on 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 it eventually because I feel like her story needs to be told. This little girl, I mean. Well, I really appreciate you sharing your story because it's a fascinating story. And thank you once more for coming on the podcast. It's been fantastic. Oh, no problem. Glad to do it. Very happy to do it. And thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. Did you know the Moore family? If you can provide Scott with any more information about the Moore family, or if you have information you'd like to share with Scott about John Moore, Elizabeth Moore, June Moore, Earl Dennison, or Sherman and Ethel Hubbard, drop me a line at reincarnationplr at gmail.com and I'll make sure the information gets to Scott. Do you have any family memories of that night of the flood or knowledge of the events of the gathering at Bertha McCaslin's house? As we've heard tonight... Scott has a deep trauma that is tied into his memories and he'd dearly love to be regressed, but he can't afford to have the therapy. So if you're a therapist who could provide Scott with a free session or two, it would be gratefully appreciated. 
or if you're a listener and just have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. I can be reached by email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com. If you'd like to keep up to date on my latest podcast posts, you can find me on Facebook under Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited or on Twitter and Instagram and you can find me there under Reincarnation PLR. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Music